Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 20? We're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20, and we come to verse 27. Luke chapter 20 and verse 27. Luke 20, reading from verse 27. Then came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. But there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age that, and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls uh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Amen. Several years ago, the Academy of Religion and the Society for Biblical Literature held a conference in Chicago. They invited Dr. Martin uh, uh, Marty, professor of history of modern Christianity at the University of Chicago, to give the opening lecture to the 4,000 delegates that had assembled. The 4,000 delegates between them represented uh, 2,000 years of PhD research and were considered to be the top theological minds uh, of their day. Dr. Marty began his lecture with the words, Never in the history of Christianity has more brain power been assembled in one place. And then he paused, waiting for their egos to inflate, and then punctured them with the words than when Jonathan Edwards sat alone in his study in Northampton, Massachusetts. And the whole place broke uh, into loud laughter and applause. And I'm sure that's true because Jonathan Edwards was a giant, a giant intellectually and a giant spiritually. He entered Yale University at the age of 13 and was the second president of Princeton University. But even Jonathan Edwards, described by John Piper as the greatest theologian that has ever lived, peels into insignificance in comparison to the intellectual ability and spiritual insight of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 22, we find one group after another coming and putting questions to him with the intention of trapping him and humiliating him before the people. The Pharisees come, the scribes come, the uh, Herodians come, even the chief priests come, and they try to catch him on his words. But he answers them all with one of his uh, um, he answers them all with his superior wisdom, and he silences them all. Now, this morning, we find another group coming and posing a question to Jesus. In verse 27 to verse 40, we read of the Sadducees coming and asking Jesus a question 
a thorny question about the resurrection. They thought they had him on this question, but again, Jesus answers them in such a way that he silences them, for we told in verse 40 that no one longer dared ask him any question. It's a marvelous revelation and demonstration of our Lord's ability to handle his antagonists and to silence them even when they pose thorny and difficult questions. Never in the history of the world, even in the days of Jonathan Edwards, was so much brain power in one place when our Lord walked upon the face of the earth. Notice five things about Jesus. First of all, notice the people that he encounters. In verse 27, we're told that some of the Sadducees came to him to ask a question about the resurrection. Now, immediately we discover that their motives are far from pure. They're not genuine inquirers because, as verse 27 tells us, they themselves did not believe in the resurrection. As every Sunday school student would tell you, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. Now, that's, that's a great soundbite, but it's a little misleading. The Sadducees, in fact, were a very confident and, and contented people. They were the aristocracy of their day, of Jewish society. They were wealthy. They were educated. They traced their family line back to Zadok, the high priest, during uh, David's reign. They uh, were only to be found in Jerusalem. They were relatively few in number, but held all the positions of power in the temple. So the high priests, the priests, and most of the Sanhedrin were all Sadducees. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that they were well-to-do, and they were held in high esteem by the people. Now, they have been described as the theological liberals of their day. I think that's an unfortunate description and a little unfair. It's true that they did not believe in life after death. It is true that they did not believe in a future bodily resurrection. It is true that they didn't believe in the existence of angels. It is true that they rejected the doctrines of predestination and divine providence. But as far as their interpretation and implementation of the law, they were strict and exact. They were fanatical about the laws of Levitical purity. Josephus says they were probably the most um, scrupulous of all the Jewish sects. They believed that the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were the only rule in all matters of faith and practice. They rejected oral tradition that had been built up by uh, the rabbis, and they rejected the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. The rest of the Old Testament, they argued, was simply a commentary on the first five books of the Bible and wasn't authoritative um, uh, uh, part of the Word of God. And because they didn't find a reference to the afterlife in the first five books of the Bible and to the resurrection, they said it wasn't true. You could find references to those things in the historical books, in the poetical books, in the wisdom books, in the prophetical books, but not in the books of Moses. And so, since the books of Moses were the only inspired part of the Word of God, they rejected the doctrine 
of the resurrection, and they rejected uh, the doctrine of an afterlife. So in their lives, they lived as if there was no tomorrow. All that mattered was knowing God and serving God in this life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, but do it all for the glory of God. That was their philosophy. So far from being sad, you see, they were very contented and happy. They lived life to the full because they believed that's all they had this life. There was no life beyond the grave. Josephus again tells us that they had an air of superiority about them. They looked down their condescending noses at the Pharisees and all the other Jewish sects because they weren't really enlightened. They didn't have real understanding in accepting the rest of Scripture. So it's these Sadducees then that come to our Lord to pose this question, the people he encounters. The second thing I want you to notice is the question he faces. Look at verse 28 through to verse 33. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died uh, without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Here the Sadducees put forward a hypothetical uh, case designed initially to embarrass the Pharisees, now being employed to embarrass Jesus. The Pharisees were hot on the resurrection, and they spent hours discussing and speculating about the resurrection. One of the questions they asked was that in the resurrection, would you be wearing clothes or not? And uh, they then thought about that. They considered it and said, well, you must be wearing for modesty's sake, clothes. But then the discussion went on. What clothes would you be wearing? Would you be wearing new clothes or would you be wearing the clothes that you were buried in? To the Sadducees, that was just ridiculous. And they loved to ridicule the Pharisees for such nonsense. And they had mastered the art of infuriating the Pharisees with some questions of their own. Now, this question that was posed to Jesus was the best known, and they felt the most watertight. This was a question that every Sadducee child would cut his teeth on in primary school. It, it concerns the Old Testament teaching on Leverite law, as taught in Deuteronomy 25. Now, Leverite comes from the Latin, uh, which simply means uh, your brother's husband, or your husband's brother, sorry, your husband's brother. Now, that law in Deuteronomy 25 taught that if a wife lost her husband, the brother of the husband or his nearest relative uh, had to marry her so that the first child of that union would be counted as an heir for the dead husband to carry on his family name. The law was designed to provide for the widow and to ensure that the husband's name wouldn't disappear from Israel. The best example of that in the Old Testament is where Ruth married Boaz, a relative of her dead husband. But what the Sadducees did was that they took that law and they pushed it to a ridiculous conclusion. A man dies and leaves his wife without a child. His brother marries her, but he too dies without providing an heir. Now, two or three cases would be enough, but in this Sadducean uh, a story, this black widow marries seven brothers, all who die without children. And the question that they asked is, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? 
Now, there's a slight, probably a remote possibility that such a thing would happen, but the probability of it happening is very unlikely. By the time the third brother had died, the fourth brother would have taken to his heels and got out of there as quick as he could, thinking this woman was jinxed uh, uh, and didn't, wouldn't want anything to do with her. They wouldn't even wait for the funeral to take place. You couldn't see them for dust. If it wasn't so serious, it would be laughable. The argument is technically known as reducto ad absurdum. It's trying to show that the belief cannot be true because you push the belief to the absurd and the ridiculous. Go on, Jesus. Give us the answer. If you believe in the resurrection, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? A well-honed, calibrated question and designed to embarrass initially the Pharisees, but also Jesus. With a smug, self-satisfied smirk on their faces, they waited for an answer and thought that they had made the whole issue of the resurrection look absolutely ridiculous. What would Jesus do? Would he dare to answer such a ridiculous question and try to defend such a ridiculous doctrine as the resurrection, the question he faces? The people he encounters, the question he faces. The third thing I want you to notice is the answer he gives. Look at verses 34 through to 36. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now notice Jesus speaks of this age and that age or this world and that world, as the authorized version says. And what Jesus says, life in that world is very different from life in this world. He is contrasting the world to come with the life that we live in this world. And although they are similar, they're also different. There is continuity in that bodies will be raised, physical bodies, but there is discontinuity in the life that we live in that world will be different. And one of the ways it will be different is that people will not marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Now, the fact that there is no marriage in the resurrected life might be good news for some who have bad marriages in this life, but it might be a little disappointing for those who have good marriages to realize that that relationship doesn't continue into eternity. I remember feeling a little disappointed when I first read these words. I quite like my wife, and uh, I would like to hang out with her in the resurrection. After all, she'll be perfect, and she'll not complain when I read the paper when we go out for coffee, and she might argue that I'll be perfect, and I wouldn't be so rude as to read the paper when I go out with her for coffee. But it's a kind of a sad thought that you'll not be hanging out with your wife in the resurrection. But notice carefully what Jesus says. He tells us there is no marriage in verse 36. And there is no marriage because people don't die in heaven. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
You see, in this life, marriage and procreation are necessary because people die. One generation after another passes, and each generation must marry and produce children so that the next generation will be raised up. But in heaven, we are like the angels. And that doesn't mean to say that gender differences are obliterated in the resurrected life, nor does it mean that we'll simply be spirits in the resurrected life. The Greek uh, um, uh, will be like the angels applies to the, the marrying. Not, it's not a reference to our, our, our bodily state. The angels are eternal, and we will be like them. We will be eternal. And so the earth then won't need replenished. So there will be no funerals in heaven. And because there are no funerals in heaven, there will be no maternity wards in heaven. Since there is no death in the future, there is no need of birth in the present. So there will be no marriage, nor will people be given in marriage. Marriage, he says, is a gift of this age. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says the questions about sex and marriage or, uh, uh, in the resurrection are as irrelevant um, as, as uh, questions about sex and marriage to a little boy whose only concern and delight is chocolate. These things will peel into utter insignificance in comparison to the wonder and the glory of Jesus. Marriage is for this age only. Mormons take note you will not forever in some faraway land with a number of wives have sex and produce uh, supernatural children. Muslims take note. You'll not be lying on green pillows uh, indulging every appetite and having 72 virgins to indulge you. Marriage is for this life only. Now, some of you with good marriages might be a little disappointed. Well, let's take this a little bit further. Will we recognize one another in heaven? Charles Spurgeon was asked that question, will we recognize one in heaven? And he said, do you think we'll be greater fools up there than we are down here? And he has a point. But, but let's think biblically. Let's think about the transfiguration. You remember when our Lord was transfigured and His glory broke through His humanity, He was joined by Moses and Elijah. But it was Moses and Elijah. They had kept their identities. They were identifiable as Moses and Elijah. So I still will be Stephen Curry in that resurrected state, and you still will be you, and Abraham will still be Abraham, Isaac will still be Isaac, and Jacob will still be Jacob, as verse 37 tells us. Remember, too, that marriage has a twofold purpose. There is the physical, sexual, childbearing side of marriage. Jesus has told us that will end. But there is also the friendship and companionship side of marriage, and that uh, will not end. It doesn't have to end. As the marriage ceremony says, marriage was ordained for the companionship, help, and comfort which a husband and wife ought to have for each other. Now, I can't see why that help, comfort, and companionship needs to end, and why that fellowship and communion can't extend into eternity. Now, it's true 
that we'll enjoy that comfort, that friendship, that fellowship with, with all people, but that doesn't preclude or exclude our present spouses. So, yeah, I think I'll have a cup of coffee with Gail in the uh, resurrected state. Not be the same relationship that it is here, but it, there will be a relationship. It will be a relationship enjoyed in the context of a wider uh, relationship with others. So, you see what Jesus is saying. Since you don't die in heaven, there is no need to procreate. The population is fixed and stable, so there's no marriage or there's no being given in marriage. But that's not to say that we won't know one another, that we won't enjoy one another, and we won't enjoy the company of those that we were closest to in this life. I like the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, I do hope I will be near enough my wife to speak to her frequently, frequently. The absence of marriage does not mean a watering down of our earthly relationships, but a maximization of all relationships. Jesus says to the Sadducees, your question is absurd, because marriage as we know it in that physical uh, sense will not continue into eternity. The answer he gives. The people he encounters, the question he faces, the answer he gives the fourth thing I want you to notice is the evidence he produces. Now, remember these Sadducees rejected as authoritative all of the historical books, all of the poetical books, all of the prophetical books of the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those other books were simply commentaries, they said, on the first five books of the Bible, they might be right and they might be wrong. So, if a doctrine could not be proved from the Pentateuch, that doctrine they rejected and wouldn't accept. So, they argued that since the doctrine of the afterlife doesn't appear in the first five books of the Bible, it wasn't true. Now, in verse 37, I want you to notice the sheer, absolutely sheer brilliance, insightful uh, thinking of the Lord Jesus because he doesn't, he doesn't prove the doctrine from Job, from the Psalms, or from the prophets, all of which he could have done so, but he, he turns and he meets them on their ground, and he proves the doctrine from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible. With one simple quote, in one devastating blow, he silenced the Sadducees and he, uh, his critics completely. Look at verses 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Never in the history of the world has so much brain power been revealed in one place when Jesus walked on the earth. His argument is simple brilliant and decisive. Jesus says in the account of the bush, why doesn't he say in Exodus chapter 3? Because you remember Edwin told us uh, last week that the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were added at a much later date. They're, they're not inspired. Sometimes they're in the right place. Sometimes uh, they're in the wrong place. They are helpful uh, for us to get around the Bible. But there were no chapter divisions in the original um, 
manuscripts. So Jesus says, you know know that bit about the bush? Well, they knew that because they had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Do you remember God revealed Himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Jesus says, although the patriarchs had been dead for hundreds of years, uh, God refers to them in the present tense. When God met Moses at the burning bush, Jacob had been dead for 108, uh, 198 years. Isaac had been dead for 225 years. Abraham had been dead for 330 years. But God did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. If I said to you, I am your father's friend, I'm implying that your father is still alive. If I said, I was your father's friend, I am praying that your your father has died or else there's been a change in my relationship with him. If I say, I am your father's friend, that implies that he is alive and that I have an ongoing relationship with him. Do you see the sheer brilliance of the logic of Jesus? With a carefully reasoned, exegetical examination of Hebrew tenses, he proves that God is the God of the living and not the dead. It's interesting, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says to these Sadducees, you do err because you do not know the Scriptures and the power of God. Their refusal to believe in a resurrection sprang from an ignorance of the teaching of the Bible and a refusal to believe that God was powerful enough to raise the dead. They had a defective understanding of Scripture, which led to a defective understanding of God, which led to a defective theology. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living, they were in the presence of God experiencing resurrection life. I hope you get the point. A right understanding of God springs from a right understanding of Scriptures, and that's why we need to keep the authority of Scripture ever before us. If you have a wrong understanding of Scripture, you will have a defective understanding of God. So when it comes to theological debate, the the issue is not what do I think or what do I understand or or what do current events reveal or what do I personally, what have I personally experienced, but what saith the Scriptures? Jesus silenced them and corrected them by quoting one verse of Scripture from a portion of the Bible from the Old Testament that they accepted. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the evidence he produces. The people he encounters, the question he faces, the answer he gives, the evidence he produces, and then finally, the warning he gives. I think Jesus isn't only correcting the Sadducees, but he's giving a warning to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to those that were gathered listening to this conversation. You see it there in verse 35. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
You see that? Jesus asserts and teaches that not all will partake in this resurrected life, in the life to come. There's going to be a separation and a division. Some of you are going to be raised for that resurrected state. Some are not. Now, the Pharisees taught that every Jew would be raised and would become a son of the resurrection. No, says Jesus. There's going to be a division. There's going to be a separation. Only those who are considered worthy are accounted worthy, are counted worthy, credited as worthy, will experience that life. Now, we know from other ports, uh, parts of Scripture that all will be raised, all will experience the resurrection, some to righteousness and some to judgment. Not all are sons of the resurrection, but only those who are considered worthy. Don't you think, says Jesus, because you're Jews, that you automatically will be raised to resurrection life, but only those who are accounted, considered, credited as worthy will have that privilege. Now, none of us, of course, are worthy. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and left to ourselves, none of us would ever attain to that resurrected life because none of us would be accounted or considered to be worthy enough. But that's why Jesus came. He came into our world to do what we could never do, to live a life that was worthy, that was pleasing to God. And He died upon the cross to take away that sin that, that, uh, that makes us unworthy, so that his worthiness might be ours. Now, Jesus doesn't explain all of that here. He doesn't tell us how we could be uh, considered worthy, how a man or a woman or a boy or a girl could ever be considered worthy. But that's the whole teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that we can be worthy through Jesus Christ, through accepting Him, by believing in Him, by trusting Him, by resting in Him. We can be worthy that His good life is given to us, our bad life is take, given to Him, and He takes away our sin. And there's no other way to be, to be worthy, to find acceptance before God, other than through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, said Jesus, except through me. Jesus clearly taught that there is life after death, that when we die, our spirits live on. But not only that, He taught that, uh, that when He comes again, our, our bodies will be raised, reunited with our spirits, and body and spirit will inherit the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Are you worthy of that? You can never be worthy in yourself, but Jesus can make you worthy if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him. And it's my prayer that all who listen to this broadcast might find that worthiness in the only source where it is to be found, in Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Will you believe? That's the question. The people he encounters, the question he asks, he faces, the answer he gives, the evidence he produces 
the warning he issues. What amazing wisdom and insight the Lord Jesus had. Never in the history of the world has so much brain power been present in one place than when Jesus walked upon this earth. Amen.